For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I become as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside of the law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So I run, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. All right. I, uh, years ago, I heard a message uh, at a conference. This is when I was 18 years old, and some of you have heard my, uh, my kind of youth conference, uh, big uh, change of life story. Well, this is two years after that. I was kind of a junior youth leader at my church. And there was, a, there was a pastor there uh, speaking, and I remember three things very distinctly that he talked about. He was a very, very animated, strong African-American pastor, and he had this moment where he was just uh, really, really into it, and he was talking about how God cannot lie, and he turned to us and he said, do you know what this means? If the Lord said pink elephants in this room, they would be there. And I was like, okay, I don't know. So I remember that, pink elephants. If God said it, it would have occurred. He cannot lie. Uh, That stood out from back when I was a kid. Uh, The other thing he talked about was that people from his church in their neighborhood had begun going to the strip clubs that were plaguing their neighborhood and calling people to, to, you know, leave the clubs and go back to their husbands and wives and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, that's amazing. Um, And then he said this thing that some people were called to give their entire uh, lives, even their careers, to ministry. And when he said that, something perked in me where I was like, I think I'm feeling this. Okay. Um, So I I was like, I think I should do that. I don't think I should be going to the strip clubs, personally. And uh, that pink elephant thing was awesome. Those are my big takeaways. So I came home to my small church here in Tucson in the Amphi neighborhood. And to their credit, um, I think I've told some of you this before, I got up to give a little report after the youth conference, and I said, I, uh, I think I'm supposed to be in ministry, um, so if you have a job, I'd really like to go ahead and start. And they gave me one, which is shocking, the more I think about it, looking back. Uh, they, gave me some, they gave me a job doing some very random things. I was the bongo player. Um, I took attendance for every service. I did announcements. I basically was, you know, what John Simon was last year, right? Um, so we don't make him play bongos. Um, and I, I cut the grass. Um, and, and in usually when I was out working on the facilities, doing that kind of stuff, I started to bump into a lot of the kids uh, in the neighborhood. So this church, if you, if you know anything about the Amphi neighborhood, there's Amphi High School in Amphi Middle School, they're kind of, they're not, they're not across from each other, but if you were to walk straight out of those two into the neighborhood, um, the place where the, the line of people from Amphi High and Amphi Middle School would, would meet would be where our church was. And so every day, about three o'clock, um, our parking lot would fill up with kids 
who all just sort of, it was just a, a parking lot with a basketball hoop, and they would just come and hang out. And so I started to, to talk to these kids and hang out with these kids, and I just noticed, here they are, they're, they're here, they're just in our parking lot. Um, and, it, and it became my favorite thing to do. And I began to, um, to notice something that, that I've seen throughout my, my ministry career ever since. Um, and, that, um, and, and I see it in people's responses to Jesus, and that was that this presence um, brought up concerns. Okay, brought up some concerns. And um, it, it was hard to kind of discern them. Uh, you know, I, I have to say, I, this church was great in many ways. I appreciate, I'm not bagging on this church. I think they truly cared for people and wanted, to people, wanted people to know Jesus. But there were these concerns that came up as soon as the neighborhood kids uh, started getting, like, access inside the building. Um, I remember one time I, I let one of them in to use the restroom, and, uh, and somebody talked to me and said, you know, you really shouldn't be letting them in there. I said, they had to go to the bathroom. You know, what's up? And they said, well, you know, it doesn't really look appropriate for there to be like a kid in a building and you're there. And I said, but I stayed outside. Yeah, it just doesn't seem appropriate. Why? You know, what's up with that? And then some of them started to come to church and, and when I got a little talk, it was like, hey, you know, they're just, they're just not really respectful. You know, one of them had their hat on. I said, this kid has literally never been in church his whole life. That's, that's what we're going to go after is his hat. And then the, the worst one was there was a, a group of Hispanic leaders that actually had been like leading in the area for a while, and they had a little group as well from the community, and they wanted to use the church building on Sunday nights. And one of these same people stood up in the middle of a meeting and said, I really don't think our carpet is able to handle the wear and tear that these people are going to bring on it. And 18-year-old big mouth me stood up and said, so Mexican people harm carpet more than we do? Is like, did, is that what I just heard? <laughs> right? And, it, and he started to, but what is this? What, what is the problem here? Right? It seems like these, it seemed it, in, as if these concerns were somehow keeping our group insulated from the people of this neighborhood who had deep needs. And they were a, they were a mess. I mean, there were, there were issues, right? Like kids who'd never been in church, people who didn't know how to, you know, what the rules were inside of here. But these were people that had needs and they wanted to be served. And it began to feel like that these concerns were coming up without any solutions. And that maybe we just didn't really want to deal with people that didn't fit our church, truthfully. Now, I don't know everyone's heart in this, right? But that's what started to happen, what it started to feel like. Um, after that, I worked in some churches where it was very different. Uh, this is not a critique of the entire church. It's just one experience I had. I worked in the Salvation Army, and there it was like everybody, anybody come in, no matter what you were dealing with. Um, the church uh, I worked at in Chicago, when I, when I lived and worked in Chicago, same. Like, I mean, you could, everybody come in, no matter what was going on. And then uh, when I worked in the Presbyterian Church, I saw another version of this, because you get, you get introduced uh, to Tim Keller in worlds like that. And with somebody like Tim Keller who put on his website for most of his ministry, skeptics welcome. I thought that was another thing. I was like, I have never seen a church say, come with your, come with your hard questions and your challenges. So it, it, it's not always the case, but it's something I've seen over and over again. Um, now, I don't want to just critique the church for not being like welcoming. 
Um, I think we need to be faithful. So we have have to ask the question, what, you know, as they say, what would Jesus do in this situation? And I think we know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to anchor in our text for this evening, which is uh, verse 21 from 1 Corinthians 9, but also Luke 15, okay? And Luke 15, here is where we find Jesus. If we want to ask the big question, what does Jesus do in these situations? It says, now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And, and the parable that's coming, we'll get into it a little bit, it's kind of a triple parable about the coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal, right? And many of you might be familiar with that. But this is a recurring theme for Jesus. He receives sinners. And not only receive, he eats with them, which means he's spending extended time. He's in their homes, right? And Jesus clearly prioritized this, which explains why in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, sent by Jesus, is seeking out people who are outside of the law. And so this is the verse in 1 Corinthians 9 we're zooming in on this evening. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. And I want us to walk away with an understanding of who who these outsiders are, what it means to be under the law of Christ. That's a key piece of the scripture. And then what what we should expect when engaging with outsiders. Um, I I actually think that is something we really have to think through um, as a church. So who are the outsiders Paul is talking about? Paul Paul here, he's giving us a pattern for mission. That's something that I was uh, working out over the last couple weeks. He's giving us a pattern for mission. Um, and he's showing us, here's how I have done this. As I, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is in the context of the Corinthian church asking him a question, um, especially one about meat sacrifice to idols. And he's taught them how to engage that question. He doesn't clean it up and say, you do it or you don't do it. He gives them his missional objective, which is that people would be won over and that you would sacrificially lay down anything that got in the way of that. That's, that's what his missional teaching to them is. It isn't which one is right or wrong? It's what would you do to win somebody over? That's the big question that he poses. And he kind of doesn't clear it up, but he gives them that objective and he teaches them that, right? Now, Paul has been developed. He's grown up in Jewish context. So for him, when he, when he went to the Jews, as we talked about last week, that was an easier move for him. That was one that he understood. This was going home, right? This was going home. And it didn't always go well for him. It was difficult. But here, especially in the case of a city like Corinth, Paul is teaching us what he did when he went to places that were not so familiar, places like Corinth itself, where people were, you know, what we might call today unchurched. Um, But he isn't just talking about unchurched people. He says people who are outside the law. So to really work this out, we have to ask, what does it mean to be outside the law? It It can't mean civil law. Paul is not talking about them being outside of the civil law of Corinth. Elsewhere, he he tells people very clearly to obey the governing authorities. He would not say that. That isn't what he's talking about. Um, It wouldn't be talking about outside of the laws of kind of reason or something like that. It's it's very specific. It means the law of God. And I want to work out just for a second for you what that means because I think it's a little unclear to us sometimes. 
The law of God in their minds, what he would have been talking about, is revelation from God. This is a really important little piece for us to understand. It has its origin in God. It's God revealing his character and his will to people. And this is huge. Think about this. Just just imagine this for a second. If there's a God um, who cares for people, wants to engage with people, you would assume that that God would do something in order to let the people know who he is and what they need to do, that that the God would communicate. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying that has happened and that God has done. That God didn't just leave us hunting, that God has, at the right time, delivered down intelligible information that we can look at and say, ah, that's who God is, and this is what I do in response to God. This is how I approach God. This is how I worship God. This is how I please God. This is how I'm reconciled to God. So the law is God's self-revelation, his attributes, his character, and the appropriate response to him. And so when Paul says these people are not under the law, he cannot mean they're not accountable to God. That can't be what he means, because elsewhere in Romans 1, he teaches that creation itself makes God perceivable enough that everyone is accountable to the truths creation declares. So he's not saying that not being under the law means they're not accountable to God's law. They just must have some misunderstanding of it or or a lack of understanding of it. Romans 1 says essentially that God is the creator and we are the created ones. That's a huge statement. That challenges us to the core and it arranges us under God as being accountable and dependent and owing everything to, good, to a good God. And Paul in Romans 1 basically says, you can just perceive that from looking around. You can see the complexity of creation. You can see the purposefulness behind it. You can see the depths of what's going on in it, and you have to grapple with these questions. And the reason the idea of like an utterly chaotic universe feels freeing to us is because it gets us out from under that idea, okay? Except it also gets us out from under the idea that our lives might have meaning or that we could actually belong to something that matters or that there's any form of truth that we could anchor in. It also gets us out from under that. Paul also could not be saying that people aren't generally accountable to God because he here is teaching people to be on a mission to have people reconciled to God. And you can't be reconciled to God unless you're unreconciled with God. So you must have accountability to God, be unreconciled from God, and need reconciliation for Paul to even be having this conversation. So everyone is accountable to God's law by nature of being a created being and not the Genesis being who God is. But some people may still not see themselves as under the law. So what does that mean? What would it mean to be under the law? Here are a few, uh, or not under the law. Here are a few ways I think we could understand this. Um, Some people have taken themselves out from under the law by rebelling. So some people might, might say, and I, I have been with people as they've said these types of things. You know, they'll, they'll look, they'll say, I, did, you know, God says this, and not everybody doubts that. There, there are people who legitimately look. I say, God says I must forgive my brother. 
I don't want to, and they don't. That, that's rebellion. That's saying, I see what God's law is. I don't want to do it. I don't care. And, and people say that when you get down deep. The other would be people who fail. They know the law of God, but they've given up. And I'm not saying by fail, I don't mean like you're a failure, but they feel a sense of failure. And there are people within Christianity or even outside who have this sensitivity to their responsibility to something and feel all the time like, I, I'm just, I'm failing. I don't measure up. I don't, I, I don't belong. I can't ever be considered you know, good or right. Or if there's a God, he doesn't want to have anything to do with me, right? Then there's the unfamiliar. And this is where people, they just don't even know what it is. And, and increasingly today, there are people who, who would say that in our midst. This isn't just, you know, the people out on, a, on the unreached island. I mean, there are people in our community here who, if you were to say, what does God expect of, of people? They would go, I have no idea, right? They're just unfamiliar. And then, and then I think there's the pseudo-familiar and opposed. And these would be people who, who would say, I know what Christianity is about to some degree, and I, I don't want anything of it. It's oppressive it is dangerous. I don't want to. Have, I don't want to touch that with a ten-foot pole. And and we can, you know, as as those say, say we're, you know, familiar with Christianity in here. Maybe some of you aren't, but to those of you who are, this is how you would feel about the religion that you think is the worst. And truthfully, if you'd grown up in some other space, you might feel that way about Christianity too. So in our context, in our, in our outpost idea, in our outpost model, we're, we're going to see a lot of this stuff. And I, I really think, I think we'll see all four of these. I think we'll especially see the failures and the pseudo-familiar and opposed. I think we're going to see a lot of this. And both of those categories of people, especially, 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 need to understand the concept of grace. Because if you feel like, you know, I'm not good enough for any of this religious stuff, I mean, what you don't see is how Christianity is all about grace enabling you to have a transformed heart and a new orientation toward God. Like, that can absolutely undermine that sense of failure. And, and if you're opposed and say, ah, oh, this, is, this is oppressive and dangerous, I guarantee you do not understand the depths of what grace can do to a human heart and how this God who you could see in the Bible, who you might say, this God is terrible. Look at all the demands. Look at the judgmentalism. Look at all this terrible stuff. Well, when you see that that absolutely democratizes the world before God, it makes everyone level and equal. No one is righteous. And then gives a gift that can actually change your heart and soul and change your orientation toward God and others. You might just rethink it. But I think we're going to see a lot of that. So there are several ways a person might be not just under um, or under the law. Those are ways. But there's one more that you would not be just under the law, and that's to be a Christian. Um, that, that's essentially what Paul is saying here. Paul, Paul says there's, there's another way, and that is being a Christian, which means the law isn't what governs me anymore. The gospel does. And it's reoriented me to the law. So that leads to our second idea. What does it mean to be uh, under the law of Christ? Because Paul says, I'm, not that I'm not under the law, but I'm under the law of Christ. Uh, I'll, read, I'll read our little verse again. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. 
not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He, he gives this clarifier that I might win those outside the law. Those words outside and under are really important. Um, Paul says, I'm not outside the law. I'm not disconnected from the law. I'm just not a slave to the law. It doesn't rule me. It's not my master. It's not what helps me. It's not how I become righteous. It's not what I put my faith in. It's something I approach from a neutral position, from a position of having received grace. I'm under one master, and the master is Jesus, and his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and under him as my master and his grace, I can look at the law from the perspective of how do I please him instead of being under it. The law honors my Lord Jesus, so I strive to obey, is what somebody says who's under the law of Christ. Someone under the law of Christ says it teaches me how Jesus covers my sins, so I look to the law to illuminate and understand the work of Jesus, not as my path to righteousness. It says, under Jesus, I've been deeply loved and forgiven by God, so now I prioritize love and grace-giving and obey him at the deepest level. His gracious character is familiar to my heart, so I want to please him. A short way of defining what it means to be under the law of Christ would be this. It would be to love with the aim of pleasing God because of Jesus. To love with the aim at pleasing God because of Jesus. So we have to ask, how would Jesus be pleased? How would we follow him? And that leads us back to Luke 15, where Jesus has this draw and this attraction to sinners, and he moves toward them, and he eats with them. If being under the law of Christ means love aimed at pleasing God because of Jesus, we have to see that God is pleased when we follow Jesus toward sinners, toward those who are outside of his grace, okay? Being under the law of Christ means love aimed at pleasing God because of Jesus, and pleasing God occurs when we follow Jesus toward outsiders who do not know his grace. So, what should we expect? As a church, saying we commit to reaching outsiders. We walk with Paul, we walk with Jesus, committed to reaching outsiders. I want to suggest a few things. It will take a lot of work and time. It will be messy, and you will receive criticism, and you will find joy in Jesus, and you will be changed. I want to work those out. Why do I say this? Why do I set these kind of expectations? Um, I think our expectations shape our experience. I heard this illustration. Um, okay, you're... Uh, Someone blindfolds you and walks you into a room, um, and they take off the blindfold, and you look around, and it's your husband saying, this is our honeymoon suite, and in it, there is a little dingy bed with a really lame little blanket on it and a dimly lit light on a small little bedstand and a folding chair. Yeah, you think it's fine. See, that's why I was talking to the women right now. And you go, our honeymoon suite? Okay, you're disappointed, right? Okay, change the scenario. You're blindfolded. You're walking into the room. They say, this is your solitary confinement cell. It's your captor. They hate you. 
There's a little bed with a nightstand, a light, and a full. Oh, okay, that's not bad. All right, this could have been way worse, right? Our expectations change our experience. You, you expect a honeymoon suite, you know, and you, and you get this, you, ah! you expect solitary confinement, you get this, okay, <laughs> it could have been worse. Our expectations change our experience. I try to be very clear with people moving toward marriage in our church. Some of you have experienced this with me because I say this marriage you're going into is preparing you for God and it's teaching you the principles of the gospel. So expect some things, expect conflict, expect to have to lay things down, expect pressure, expect some difficulty. And why would I say that? You know, I also will say expect some really great joy and for God to transform you. But why do I say that? Because I know, because I've been married, right? Because I've walked with people who've been married. You're going to bump into all those things. So if I tell you, oh my gosh, this is the happiest day of your life. This, your soul will be so fulfilled. You will never be lonely again. Um, you're going to just be, oh my, the smile on your face every morning when you wake up. And when you come home, it's going to be, oh my, prepare have your mind blown with happiness, right? And the person gets married and they go, what? <laughs> like, sometimes this person, you know, I have to change for this person. Sometimes I have to lay things down. But you say, look, expect there to be conflict. Expect God to use this to actually shape you into his image and to teach you about grace by exposing things like your self-righteousness. And then you bump into a conflict and you go, oh, maybe that's what's going on here. Maybe that's what's happening. Maybe this is good right? That's why we set expectations. So setting expectations is good. We're, we're going to deal with work and time and mess and criticism and joy and heart shaping. So Paul said to, um, to the Jews, he became like a Jew, even though technically he was one. To those under the law, he became like one under the law. And it takes more time and work to relate to people you don't understand. Paul is here talking about relating to people he didn't grow up like. There's a lot of strategy to do it, doing it. There's a lot of discernment to doing it. I want to show you this in Luke 15. Jesus tells this three-part parable. It's the, the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. And it begins this way. And just, just look for these concepts in here as I read. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one who is lost until he finds it? And the answer in these people's hearts, because sheep are valuable commodities, is that yes, you would go find your sheep. They knew that. They would have answered yes. The second part uh, begins this way, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And the answer here is yes, she would do that. And, and one of the things that we don't read into there is if you're lighting a lamp um, and, and sweeping the house and, and you only have 10 silver coins, this means you're poor. This, this was the type of house that a poor woman lived in and so to lose 10% of your income, 10% of the money that you had, of course you would go and look for it, right? And a theme you see in these two illustrations of Jesus is work. I mean, you have to go after it until you find it. This shepherd is like, he has to leave all of his sheep in the open, in the open country and go into a whole different type of country. Like he's walking far and seeking far. This woman is lighting her lamp. She is sweeping. I mean, this is a dirt floor hut. She's sweeping it over and over is the coin under one of these layers of dirt sweeping over and over and over. It's time, and it becomes the first 
priority of their lives. Do you see that? It takes over as the first priority of your lives. I have a question. Is our first priority as followers of Jesus to see lost people restored? Do we drop everything? Now, these are tax collectors and sinners in Jesus' situation. It isn't just sweet people in other countries. And I, the way I, reason I say that, are, are people in other countries sweet? No, they're not. Everybody has issues, I know. But listen, I have noticed this, and I think it's true of all of us. It's, very, it's, it's way easier to take like the missions course and to think about the tribesmen because um, they're so distant from us. You can make them seem kind of like extra interesting and, and distant and like their issues aren't really that big of a deal. But all of a sudden, when it's your brother who had the same upbringing as you and chooses to go do ridiculous things, it's a lot more difficult, right? The closer people are to us, the harder it is to, cons- to, to say this work is worth it. Um, and and I, I, I know I've, I've felt this, but think about these people, tax collectors. These, these are people who are part of the oppressive government system that is actually betraying these other people. These are people who are close. And the sinners, these are, are deviants within their own community who have gotten the label of sinner because they are so far outside of what the society accepts as obedient. This, this is people who are very close. These are people who are hard to prioritize, and it takes a lot of work. There's a hymn uh, that was written in, in 1868, uh, by Elizabeth Cecilia Clefane, and she wrote it the year before she died. And my mom, I didn't know this, but my mom told me I had this one memorized as a two-year-old, which means I had a better memory when I was two than I do now. But it's about this parable, and listen to how she draws out the work. This one's called The Ninety and Nine. Some of you might have heard it. But listen to the work of Jesus that she describes None of the ransomed ever knew how deep were the waters crossed, nor how dark was the night that the Lord passed through ere he found his sheep that was lost. Out in the desert he heard its cry, sick and helpless and ready to die. Lord, whence are those blood drops all the way that mark out the mountain's track? And the Lord said, they were shed for the one who had gone astray ere the shepherd could bring him back. Lord, whence are thy hands so rent and torn? They are pierced tonight, he says, by many a thorn. I mean, what she's showing is she's saying Jesus to save us. And you see, of course, the, the, the thorn prints and, and everything. Like she's alluding to the crucifixion. But how hard it was, how much work, how much it costs for Jesus to go after one who was lost. When Jesus went looking for his lost sheep, it cost him. When Paul went seeking the lost, it cost him. You can read about his life. He's thrown out of cities. He's rejected by his own countrymen. He's stoned. It's not easy work. It's not glamorous work. But it's the priority of Jesus. It's why God entered into his creation in Jesus. And in the Great Commission, it's the work he's given to us, his church. Now, finally, I don't want to just make it about like work, 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 but, but here's another layer of work in the prodigal son. We see a layer of inner struggle because the father in the parable who's representing God, 
What's his struggle, right? Any parent whose child rejects them, rejects their wisdom, and wastes their resources feels things. Rejection, pain, and grief. And do you realize that as consistent as God is, God, God is, is he majest, majesty, is he holiness, he is, but he's emotionally and relationally complex. He is constantly in the state of being rejected and spurned and ignored and his resources being wasted. He grieves, he is filled with pain. And we will experience that too. The more we go on this mission, the more of that we will feel. It's not just that, okay? It's, it's not just the work. There's, there's messiness and, and there's criticism. That's a major theme here. Last year, last year we were in Galatians. Paul was criticized for not requiring these Christians to be circumcised. And this was a major battle of his. I mean, for him to be writing the letter of Galatians about it, this means it had gone on for months and months and months. In Luke 15, Jesus is being criticized for being with tax collectors and sinners, and it's something he heard over and over and over. There's really no point in the New Testament where you get the sense that seeking lost people and, and embracing and bringing them in is an acceptable practice for most religious people. You see that, that people within the Jewish religious system, which were God's people at the time, and people of competing religious systems could all agree they didn't want that to occur, and they were opposed to it over and over. Now, I don't say this to say go looking out for conflict. We don't. We go as agents of peace, but I am saying that if there's a real spiritual conflict in the world, then agents of peace are going to be buffeted constantly. So expect criticism. And I, I need this one because I'm always surprised. This, I read my little statement here like 10 times. Andy, expect it. Andy, expect it. I remember when I, when I planted uh, one of our churches that, that became mission, um, you have these little things you say and you look back and you go, I was right and I hate that. Um, I don't know if you have any of those. But I remember sitting with our little planting team. There were like eight people in our house and we had just read um, we had read a book about like fighting against racial injustice. We read, it was by one of John Perkins' books. And I'd said to our people, I said, look, I've seen two different things in my, in my life in ministry. I've seen churches that do, they, they spend a lot of time on fidelity to the word and the gospel. And they tend to like say all of this stuff is kind of like outside of the realm of that. And it's not really that important. And then I've seen churches who are like, you know what? Like it's all about the, the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and it's about actually getting your hands dirty and going to where the heart of Jesus says to go. And I said to our little planning team, I said, we are choosing today to not do either one of those, but to do both. And do you know what that means? That means we will not have a home. We will not have a camp. It means both groups are going to think there's something wrong with us. This group is going to think we're too liberal. This group's going to think we're too conservative. This group's going to say, ah, you're... You're being wishy-washy on the word because you let those people around, and this one's going to say you're not really dedicated to the, to the, to the mission because you're, you're too like, dead set on the Bible as the word of God. That's oppressive. I said, we won't have a home. Guess what? We don't have a home. It's true. You expect criticism. And expect it to be messy. 
There was another theme I saw in the parables this time when I read them. Um, you know, when you go out into the desert to find the sheep, like just think about that. Think about the shepherd and, and the work and, and kind of that hymn brought it out, the, the torn hands and you're digging the sheep out of the briar bush or whatever it is. Like this is not easy. This is a mess. Um, your hands and knees, when you're down looking for the lost coin, you're, you're, you're getting dirty. You're getting dirt on your hands and dirt on your clothes. To embrace the son who ate with the pigs, you're, you're embracing someone who has you know, been out and touched all sorts of terrible things. There's an element of, of mess. This is not glamorous work. I was telling our elders the other day, the kind of church that we are trying to do here, it's going to be a mess in here. Like, it is. If we bring in people who are from all sorts of different backgrounds and who are just trying to follow Jesus, it's going to be complicated. We have to own that. It's like the show Dirty Jobs should have churches involved, like emotional dirty jobs. Like, it's not easy to do. It's really complicated. It's really messy. And I, and I think, like, just imagining Jesus sitting with the tax collectors and sinners and what a messy situation, the difficult conversations those must have potentially been, I think that's where we need to be. And sometimes to follow Jesus, you will feel like you've made the mess. I, w- I would assume many criticize Paul for making the mess in Galatia or in Corinth. If he hadn't come and brought these people in and brought in these strange teachings that you didn't have to be circumcised, it all would have been way more clean and simple. And Jesus is definitely hearing that in Luke 15. If you would stop hanging out with these tax collector jerks and deviant people, then we could be just all about this this new regime and teaching and it wouldn't get all messed up. Another moment a lot of people like to point to here was Jesus, um, this happened twice, really, but especially after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which, by the way, some of you have heard me preach on this, but the triumphal entry is a weird tale. Because what you have to understand is triumphal entries were, were regular in their day. So Pilate, Pontius Pilate, he would ride in to the front gate of the city, and he, when he would come back into the city, it would be a triumphal entry. He would ride in on his horse, people would gather on the sides, and they would you know, swear their allegiance to him and hail, and and they would do all this stuff. That was a triumphal entry. This was a normal occurrence. Jesus rides in to the back gate of the city on a baby donkey. Now, that's like weird. That's like, okay, if you saw saw the president of the United States roll in with his like black SUVs, and and he rolled up right up to the Capitol, and, and you were like, hey, check this out and you like bought a car that burned oil, like a 1978 Ford Pinto with a broken window, and you sat on top of it and raised your hands and drove up to the back door of the Capitol building and had a bunch of your friends yelling, he's the man, like that'd be weird, right? Like it would, people would be like, what are they trying to do and say? That's what people felt when Jesus rode in on a baby donkey into the back gate of Jerusalem. They went, what is this? This is weird. And it was. He was turning their power dynamic upside down. He was like, I do not come the way that your conquering kings come. I come meek and mild. But then guess what he did? He walked into the temple. So he he declared that before the city. I come meek and mild. Then he walks into the temple 
the house of God, and he walks up to the money changers in the temple, and he starts flinging their tables over, and he says, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. You have made it into a den of thieves. Now he's a lion, and they're like, what is wrong with this guy? Right? Now, people will point to that and say, see, we're, we're not supposed to be meek and mild. Sometimes we're supposed to fight back. And you're right, but for what? What are we fighting for? Now, you have to ask, why did Jesus do that? And there's a very important clue in the Bible as to why he did that. This is in Mark 11, Luke 19, Matthew 21. Where were the money changers? Inside the temple. Now, there's no way they were in the holy place. There's no way they were in the court where the, men, the male Jewish people worshipped. There's no way that was happening. There was a court for females to worship at the time. I don't think they were there. It seems they were in what was called the Gentile court. And this court was designed in Herod's temple for people who were seeking or curious who could watch and consider and learn about the God of Israel. It was a space that had been designed for outsiders. Did you, did you know that that was built in to the temple? A place for outsiders to come and observe? Which makes sense then of Jesus' words when he turns over the table. Why does he quote Isaiah 56? My house was to be a house of prayer for all nations. He said that because they were filling up the space that was supposed to be for outsiders to observe with their money-changing tables. And their tables, by the way, that the money-changing, they were selling things to be sacrificed. They were there like as part of the system, the worship system of Israel. They were aiding people in buying their sacrifices. They were everybody in that, the, everybody in that temple system participated with those money-changers. It all fit, it all worked. And Jesus has said, you know what you've done with your system is you've excluded the outsiders who I want in here. So Jesus made a mess. And he upset people in the temple very much. People who were, would have said, we are under the law, we're practicing the law, because they excluded the outsider. So he made a mess. And when we're committed to outsiders, it will be messy. People will come and see and consider that don't fit. That They will. Um, people will come to, to see Jesus and consider Jesus. Some people will say, I have become a Christian after decades of living under different viewpoints and different ideas. That is not going to go boom, go away. That is going to take a long time. This, what that means is that being a part of this community, being a part of any Christian community should not be our sanctuary from the world. It means it should be like a marriage a place where we are formed and shaped and other people are formed and shaped to understand grace and to be ready for God someday. And that's not easy. Sanctification, by the way, think about ourselves. You know, I think about myself. How long did it take me to accept some of the basic beliefs about Christianity that I believe today? Decades. What do I expect from others? So why in the world would we embrace such a difficult, messy calling, right? Why? Two things. Well, one, 
big idea. It's worth it. It's worth it. It connects us to the heart of God. And ultimately, it is joyful work. That's, it, it connects us to the heart of God. It's joyful work. And in it being joyful work, it also rids us of the deepest temptation of our heart that we deal with within the church. It addresses it. And that's our self-righteousness. The parable of the lost sheep, you know, these people had concerns and they grumbled and Jesus showed them that God wants you to rejoice with him. That's what Jesus is teaching him. Listen to this. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that was lost until he finds it? When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. So the man, the one who went and saw it is happy. But look at this. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, Jesus said, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Now, by the way, that last little word right there, I I followed this up in several commentaries. Jesus is being a little tongue-in-cheek and a little sarcastic. He does this. Because isn't nobody righteous? Not one? Right. They're not. And so Jesus is saying to these Pharisees who are criticizing, he said, there will, be, there will be more joy over one sinner than repents than over 99 people that don't need repentance. He doesn't mean you don't need repentance. He's saying examine yourself is what he's saying. And what he's Offering to them is if you think you're one, of, you think you don't need to repent, then you're going to be outside of the party. If you can see you need to repent, you can come in, and that's going to get worked out even further. Now, the lost coin, Jesus uh, says, when the woman found it, she called together her friends and neighbors and said, "Rejoice with me! I found the coin that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be joy before the angels of God over just one sinner." That repents. Again, Jesus is saying the joy that comes from seeing outsiders come near is contagious and it spreads. It's good. It's beautiful. But it's in the story of the prodigal where it really comes home. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them, between his two sons. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And that's what the word prodigal means, wastefulness. When he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran, and embraced him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. 
But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is beautiful, right? This father's love and joy that is shared with everyone around him in celebration. But here Jesus turns to teach the church. Listen. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, here's our clue into what the sinners do, and who Jesus is sitting with, by the way. This is our clue. He devoured your property with prostitutes, You killed the fattened calf for him? And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me. All that that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The Pharisees here were the elder brother. And that's our temptation too. But the question becomes, you realize the prodigal, the word prodigal is never assigned to that younger brother in the, in the parable? Who did the elder brother think was wasting things? His father. His issue is with his father. His issue with his brother exposed his issue with his father. The issue in the Pharisees' hearts exposed their issue with God. He didn't like grace. Not, in, not only did he not like understand it, he didn't like it. He wanted a God of judgment because he felt better than his brother. And if he stood before a God of judgment, a father who was just, he wins. And his father pleads with him. Remember, his father gave him his part of the inheritance too. And he pleads with him to come inside, to come into the party for his brother. Do you know what that is? That's an invitation to say, realize you are like your brother. Come inside. Be about the saving mission of the gospel with me. Be about grace giving with me and repent of your self-righteousness. You might say to yourselves, I just want to, I, I don't know what to do with all this, but I want to know, I want to know what the will of God is actually in my life. I just want to know what I'm supposed to do. You know what this is telling us? The will of God is that his lost people would be sought and found as a first priority. If you do that, your sense of understanding the will of God will go up. You say, I want to feel close to God. I just, I, 
I don't know about all this reaching other people. I just don't even feel like a sense like I'm close to God. I don't know that I have this connection. Then mourn for and seek the lost to bring them back home. You will find yourself walking the same road Jesus walked, sitting with the people who Jesus sits with. You will feel connected to your father. You might say, I just, I don't know who I am. I want to find myself. I, I just want to, I want to find meaning and connection in my life. And Jesus says to us, then lose yourself for the sake of others, and you will find yourself. Look at how hard you are to forgive and stop worrying about being righteous. Just accept it and experience being an object of my grace and walk with me and give grace to others. Our prodigal God is utterly wasteful with his grace. He gives it out to anyone who will take it in ever-increasing measure, and it brings joy to his heart when he sees them entering into his love. And that's how all of us are here. That's how all of us are here. That's what that story about the prodigal, about this son was about, that really, truly, the most darkened soul there is the elder brother. If he could just see it, he could come in. And in Jesus, and because of his death for our wastefulness, everything that God has is ours. And we are invited in, we are included, we are safe, we have hope. That's what coming to this table is all about. It's saying you're invited, that God utterly wasted himself to give his riches to you. You're invited. So today, as you come to the table, I want you to imagine this. For those of you who believe and say, I believe in this Jesus and what he's done for me, I want you to think about on the way up what he did for you and on the way away from the table, what you are carrying out to the world. And especially to those close to us who are difficult. Because this is not just about us. We're called to it so we can take it and waste it to his glory. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup he said, this is a new promise to you in my blood. Whoever drinks it is included It's for the forgiveness of many. His blood has been poured out. His body has been sacrificed so that we could be included. Let's bring more people to the table. That's our calling. Before we approach the table, we're going to have a time of confession I want, I want us to come before God and just say, I mean, really think about this. What is it that keeps me from carrying the gospel to outsiders? I mean, bring that to Jesus. Just lay it before him. Just ask, what's getting in my way? And ask for his help. And confess sin around that if you need to. Whatever you need to do, knowing when you confess sin before him, He's generous, he's faithful and just. He, he lavishes out forgiveness over and over. So bring everything to him. I'm gonna pray for us now and then there's gonna be two minutes of silence for confession. 
Mike will bring us back in with music, and then I will distribute the elements at the table. And I really do encourage you, think about what he's done for you. Think about how you carry it out. Let's pray. Father, um, your love is so generous to the point of being utterly wasteful in our eyes. It's, it's really incredible that all of us are included. It's really incredible that you would accept any of us. We're not better than anyone out in our culture. There's millions of people walking around who never grace the doors of a church, who never look to you, and we are so similar to them. God, humble us before you. And also give us a passion to see your name proclaimed and to see your grace lavished out, even wastefully. May we be known for giving out too much grace. May we be known for being so shaped by our love for others that we're exhausted by it. May we be known as a church that is messy because so many people are asking their questions and working out their salvation with you. Please work in our hearts so that can be true. And lead us now as we pray.